Good cross in. Evan White, brilliant finish. And here's the danger. Sam Kerr is away. Is this to be her moment? Miedemar. And Vivian Miedemar scores again. Welcome back to Football 51. Women make up 51% of the population. And at Football 51, we don't think they're given enough coverage to reflect that. Whether you're a die-hard football fan, a passionate feminist, or someone who just stumbled across the podcast, we've got you covered on all the issues in women's football. This week, ahead of the start of the new seasons, we're launching a European mini-series, where we look at the state of women's football in England, France and Spain. We've had England, we've had France, and now it's time for the last episode of the series, Spain. Hola, soy Laura Gutiérrez y escuchas Fútbol 51. Laura Gutiérrez has just retired. She won two league titles and two cup titles with Barcelona before spending seven years playing for Levante, who came third in the top division this season. At the beginning of her career, growing up in Barcelona, she told me she sometimes played with women twice her age. Tenía seis años y empecé a jugar pues en el en el equipo de de donde vivía yo en el en el barrio en un barrio. When I was six years old, I started to play for the team where I lived in my area of Barcelona. Uh, and it was because I went to watch my cousins' matches uh, and at halftime I had my ball and I started to play on my own in front of goal or against the wall. And then one of the directors uh, of the club came up to me and asked me if I wanted to play in the team. And I was six years old, so I said yes, but I have to ask my parents. Um, and yeah, at the end of the day, my parents have always supported me. They've seen me with a ball at my feet since I was two. Uh, so I started playing with the boys. At that time, they were in teams for young girls. Um, and it was only when I was 10 that I went to play with a women's team. I was 10 and it was an amateur team. And the next youngest player was 22 or 23 years old. There were not teams like there are now for all ages. No habían equipos de Benjamines, ni de Alevines, ni nada como hay ahora, que hay de todas las edades. The football world Laura grew up in is so different even to the one her teammates knew as kids. And that started to get to Laura. It was part of the reason she retired. I, I think that kids who are 18 or 19 years old now uh, have only experienced the women's football that exists now, where you can make a decent living out of football. When you're 18 and you have companies like Nike, Adidas and Puma sponsoring you, you're earning a very good salary. They give you everything. For me, if they don't have their head screwed on right and keep their feet on the ground, they won't appreciate anything. You won't appreciate the club that you're at, the people you have around you, the medical facilities you have. You won't appreciate anything. It's like, I want that and because of who I am, I can't ask for less. As I said, it's just the constant demanding, all the time demanding. I asked her what she had to go through, that the young players coming up now didn't. For example, training. We could be training really late in the evening, like at 8 or 8.30 p.m., because that was the worst time, and of course, the women got the worst time. Um, another example could be the kit. You'd had to wash it yourself and you had one set of kit for two or three days of training. 
Um, I don't know. For example, now when you have to travel to matches in Seville or Badajoz or Galicia, you go by plane. But years ago, they wouldn't have even thought about doing that. You would have gone by bus. Um, I remember uh, once we went from Valencia to Huelva, uh, we played them once, um, and it was more than 12 hours by bus. We left, we spent the night on the bus, we arrived around lunchtime, and the next day we played. And then we went back the same way. Um, and on the way back, um, let's say we were playing at midday on a Sunday, you were there for three, so you wouldn't get to Valencia until three or four in the morning, and you would have class the next day, or there would be some players who had to work in the morning. Nowadays, that's almost impossible. Now we travel by plane or by train. Although we do have some bus, uh, although we do have some bus journeys uh, because they haven't completely got rid of them. But yeah, I just think it's those things, those details where people who haven't gone through that don't appreciate what they've got. Um, I think it's the same with brands. They only started sponsoring female footballers recently. Mm, I don't remember how many years ago. But when I was at Barcelona, when I was little, no one in the first team was sponsored by a brand. They got their boots like any old footballer. And now they get like 15 pairs of boots a year. I don't know. I just think they don't value what they have. They put in much less effort to get what they have. And for me, that isn't the real world. It's like you're in a bubble. And it's precisely that what I've always criticized um, about men's football. Because they live in another world. They live in a bubble. It's not the real world. Um, and I just think that with the new salaries... Um, that's what women's football is turning into. To find out what made women's football change, I asked Mamen Hidalgo, author of Compartiendo la Gloria, Sharing the Glory. It features the testimonies of seven women's footballers in Spain who explain how women's football has changed there and what challenges there still are to face. The turning point was probably the World Cup in Canada in 2015. That was the first time Spain had competed in a World Cup. And Spain is a country that's traditionally fanatical about football. And the men's team is always playing in big competitions and gets good visibility. In the case of women's football, before 2015, they had never played a World Cup. That was the start of the media coverage. So for the first time, we saw women who were going to play in a World Cup. Yes, they got knocked out in the group stages, but that was the first time they were really seen. After that, there was push by the league. They saw that there was growth there at the international level and that it could be a good time to grow the league and to invest in it. So the league was taken more seriously in Spain. There was also a change in the national team. There was a coach that had been in charge for 26 years and suddenly the footballers started protesting, saying that he wasn't that good, that the conditions weren't good, that they were treated like little girls. They spoke out against the deep-rooted sexism. And all that meant that people started to see these women as role models, so they started to follow them. There was also a law introduced where companies could get tax benefits for supporting women in football. So that all came together to make that change. Also, up until then, the teams that won in Spain in women's football were Rayo Balencano or Levante or El Español, which weren't big teams. 
so the league lacked the input of big clubs. So when Barcelona made their women's section professional, and when Atletico Madrid started to invest money into the women's game, that also made the game grow. So the change came from those things as a result of the World Cup in 2015, which made people invest a lot more and take the women's section more seriously. Laura has seen that change at club level. The Barcelona of now is very different to the Barcelona she knew. Mm, the truth is that when I was playing at Barcelona, there wasn't much difference between Barcelona and the other clubs. Um, when I was there, I was starting to move one step ahead of the other clubs. Um, for me, Barcelona has always been a model club, a very, very professional club. Um, I remember when I was in the second team, I started to play for the first team. I started training with them and then they selected me for a match. Um, and that year, I was part of the development pathway. Um, I was training every day and playing matches with the first team. And it was that year that we started to win. We won the Spanish Cup. Um, so that was a Barcelona, which was carving out this place and was becoming respected in the league. And I think Barcelona realized the potential they had as a team and as a club, because it's a club that moves mountains on a global scale. Um, so I think that that was the moment when they said, we have to put real money behind this if we want to make something of women's football. Um, and I think that was the turning point. Um, I think that was when they started to win cups, they started to win leagues, they started to sign very good players from the rest of the league. Um, so yeah, Barcelona was one or two step ahead of or the of the other clubs. Having played for clubs with such famous men's teams, I asked Laura if they were ever close to those men's teams. El Levante, sobre todo. At Levante, definitely. It's like a family there. Whatever event they're doing, they always have the men and the women together. That happens a lot. So there's no much distinction between the men's and the women's team. I mean, obviously there is some, because there is some in every club. But whenever they could make their conditions equal, they did. Um, but yeah, I remember that when I was at Barcelona, it was like a parallel universe. I don't know much about it now, but when I was there, we had almost no contact with the men's side. There are other type of players there. I don't know. But, well, from what I can see on social media now, Barcelona does do loads of announcements or events with the men and women's team together. So you can see that now. The biggest problem for women's football in Spain seems to be money. But Laura explains it's more complicated than that. Mm, it's not that it lacks money, per se. It's that it lacks professionalization. It's the professionalization that we were asking for, to be valued and paid. Because for so many years, we played without being paid. You could have spent 10, 15, 20 years working because football is work and not have been paid. Can you imagine in your job right now not having the right to be paid? You don't have the right to anything. Um, and that's a step that has finally been made now in several clubs where they pay their players well, um, but not at every club. It's an extra cost to pay for you to have social security, etc. 
it's an extra cost for the clubs. Mammon agrees the lack of professionalization is the biggest concern for women's footballers. The main problem that affects almost all the players, well, yes, almost all of them, is money. They want to dedicate themselves 100% to football. They train, and then when they get back home, they neglect their body. They need to be looking after their body 24 hours a day. They need to be eating well, resting well, doing physiotherapy for their muscles, essentially to have the life of an elite athlete. That's not easy. It's not like footballers only work for a couple of hours a day. In reality, their minds and their bodies are working all day, so they can be 100% when it comes to playing matches. With weekends away, travel. In Spain, two weeks ago, in the middle of August, they finally managed to pass the collective bargaining agreement, which guarantees these types of things that they were looking for. As it's not a professional league and it's still developing, what they've managed to get is the minimum, the basics. There are big clubs who won't have a problem paying those types of salaries, or even more money, and having full-time players with good salaries and good working hours. But there are lots of clubs and players that will struggle. So these players' main aim is to be able to dedicate 100% of their time to football, not 50% or 75%, but 100%. To be professional like the rest of us are in our jobs. To study because they want to study, not because they need another line of work to have football as their full-time job and not to have to do other jobs to make money. I asked Mamen to tell me more about that collective bargaining agreement that was reached two weeks ago. With the growth in the last few years, the footballers started to see that there was more money coming in, that women's football was growing, that the clubs and the league were growing, but not much had changed for them they were still having to work in bad conditions. So around two years ago, they were fed up of the situation, fed up of waiting. So the union started to demand things like a minimum salary, establish working hours, that if a player was injured and was going to be out for a long time, like a cruciate ligament knee injury, which means six months out, they would be paid for that time out. Because before, they wouldn't be paid for that time out injured. They didn't want to lose their jobs if they decided to have a baby, because they would have to take a year out. That's something other women have guaranteed in their job. So years ago, they started meeting with the unions. They established their minimum requirements and started to negotiate with the clubs. The clubs claimed that they didn't have enough money to guarantee the minimum salary of €20,000 per year that they were asking for, and that they couldn't account for more than 50% of their working time. So since October 2018, they've been negotiating very hard because both sides didn't want to budge. In November 2019, the players went on strike. They were fed up of the negotiation and waiting so long for change. They didn't play their league games for one weekend in protest. They were promised that they would get an agreement before Christmas, so they ended the strike. By Christmas, they hadn't reached an agreement, so around the end of January or the beginning of February, they had another protest at all the Women's Football League and Cup games around Spain on one weekend, where when the referee blew the whistle to start the match, they stood still for 30 seconds. That forced an agreement. Not on the terms that the footballers had proposed. For example, they asked for €20,000 a year and they got €16,000. 
but they had to give in a little bit to sign the first ever collective bargaining agreement. And from there they could come back to the agreement and keep negotiating to improve those conditions bit by bit. But they needed that base to start from. Ten days after that last protest they reached an agreement. They presented the agreement to the members of parliament. With the pandemic they couldn't corroborate it. But in mid-August they finally recognised the agreement and the players have those guarantees. What does Laura think of the agreement? They got the collective bargaining agreement. Um, it's not bad at all, but I think that's not the sign for all clubs. And what I mean is the agreement demands that all players earn a minimum salary, which is good. Um, but in a lot of clubs, they're going to earn more than that amount. Some clubs can do that because they have a big enough financial cushion or they have a first men's team that can support them so they won't have any problems with paying this amount of money. But there are smaller clubs that have been fighting for women's football but who can't afford that cost. What's going to happen to them? Are we going to leave them behind because we want everything to be professional? I agree that all women need better conditions because we have the right to earn enough money to make a living as a footballer. But would it not be better to find a solution that works for those smaller clubs too? And the federation is not helping these clubs deliver that money either. It's very easy if you have a men's team that's in La Liga that makes a lot of money, but the clubs are independent. They live off sponsorships. And now with the pandemic, do you think a sponsor is going to invest in a women's football team knowing the situation? There'll be some that, that do, but there'll be many that say, if you're not going to play and you're only going to train, why would we sign? And what will happen to those teams? What will they live off? I think that on one hand, they should receive help. And they do get some help already, but I just don't think it's enough. And I do believe that the federations have enough money to do more, to say an agreement has been signed, so for two or three years, let's give money so that everyone can fulfill the agreement equally and in an affordable way. But that's just my opinion. And having so much inequality surely makes the leagues less competitive. Here is like there are three leagues. Uh, there's Barca, that's years ahead of other teams. And well, I guess it's true that Atletico Madrid does compete with Barca and is putting a lot of effort into the women's team. Um, and then there's the teams from third place to... This year, for example, from third to 12 or 13 place. So you know who's going to win. There's 18 teams. So after that, you have the poorest clubs who do what they can. They have young players. And I guess it's normal. But before, the league was a lot more exciting because it was a lot more even. You weren't as sure who was going to win. And that's the beauty of it at the end of the day. A lot of people in England were excited when they heard that the top two Spanish leagues were turning professional. But as Mammon explains, it's not the solution we've all been waiting for. The professionalisation they announced doesn't mean anything at all right now. The players can have a professional contract, in this case they stopped at the collective bargaining agreement, 
without the league being professional. The difference right now between being professional or not is that if you're professional, you have an organisation that runs and organises the league, like in La Liga. If it's not professional, like in the Women's League, they are run by the Football Federation. The Federation said recently that they've professionalised the Women's League, but in reality the Federation can't decide whether the league is actually professional or not. It's up to the government to decide that. So the Association of Clubs took it as a way of improving the Federation's image, doing something populist, shall we say. You'd need the government to change the law for it to become professional. And the day the government does that, it will mean that the Federation doesn't have power over the league. So the Federation doesn't have a vested interest in professionalising the league. It's a bit legal, but basically what the Federation is doing is, is it's saying, OK, I consider this league to be professional. From the outside, what they're saying is, I take this league very seriously. But they don't want it to be professional, because that would mean they lose power over the league. So this recent professionalisation doesn't mean anything. But a law change to make it professional would change things. Sí que tiene un vínculo legal y que al final hace que se muevan cosas en la en la liga. The announcement about the professionalization of the leagues came in June during the COVID pandemic. I asked Maman how coronavirus had affected women's football in Spain. Coronavirus ended the Women's League in Spain, which didn't happen in countries like Germany. In Spain, they didn't go back to playing because Spain is a country that has been very badly affected by the pandemic. There have been a lot of deaths and we were stuck inside for around 90 days, so two and a half months. The men's league wasn't cancelled because it generates a lot of money and in some ways it had to come back. So they put the necessary protocols in place, which basically meant they had to test the players and all the staff every three days. That's something that the women's league right now couldn't do. Economically, it's just too high a cost. So the federation cancelled the league. So they're going to have not been playing for more months. And coronavirus affected the economic situation, of course. Clubs have just signed the collective bargaining agreement, which means they have to pay their players a certain amount. And for some clubs, that was costing them a lot of money to make the squads this year. And with COVID, the economic situation is worse. There's less publicity, they have less income. So it will cost them a lot more to dig out that money. Apart from that, the league is meant to start on the 5th of September. And right now that doesn't look possible. There's still no protocol in place for COVID. No one knows what's going to happen. Men's football generates so much money that one way or another they're going to get through this. But the women's game has been a lot harder hit economically. Laura is concerned about the economic impact that COVID might have. Mi pregunta es, ¿todos los equipos... My question is, will all the teams be able to pay for all this? I'm not an economics expert, but I honestly think that there are small clubs who won't be able to do a COVID test on everyone every five days for nine months. So how do you get the resources to make it a safe league? No one knows. They don't even know when they'll start the league because they don't have the protocols in place. Who's going to come off worst? It will be the female footballers, like it always is. And then the clubs, because... They just don't have enough support. Moving forward, 
I asked Mamen and Laura what their hopes and expectations were for women's football in Spain over the next five years. The thing is that before the pandemic, the growth of women's football was exponential. We had 60,000 people, 45,000 people in stadiums for games. We had the World Cup in 2019, when Spain did very well, especially against the United States, only losing by one goal. Lots of people in Spain watched that and followed the team. It was a big moment of growth. Real Madrid announced they would have a women's team that would join the league the 2020-2021 season. The pandemic has put a bit of a stop to those hopes. The reality is that it was growing so much with the arrival of Real Madrid, with the sponsors, with the successful national senior and youth teams, that the expectations of where it would be in five years were very high. Now we'll have to see how this standstill will affect the teams, the visibility and everything else. They say that in a crisis you have to find ways to succeed, and I think it's a time to make the sport more visible so that young girls see it as an option, to get big clubs to get behind the women's game, like Real Madrid, for Barcelona and Atletico Madrid to make themselves big names in Europe. I think although everything has been put on pause for the moment, I think that in five years women's football should be professional, have better economic guarantees than they have right now, and keep getting bigger. It's very difficult to reach the heights of men's football, especially in Spain, but we hope that it will be in a good position and that when the World Cup comes around in 2023, people will get behind the national team. I don't think that's impossible. Obviously, there won't be as many supporters as the men's team gets, but they could get a very big number of people supporting them. Mm, in five years, mm, I'd like the teams to be a lot more equal, so you don't see as much difference between Barcelona and Atletico Madrid and everyone else. Um, I'd like to see the Spanish women's team win a championship. And I think I actually think that could happen, because in five years, it can go a lot. But you just need the support to do that. Thank you so much to Laura and Mamen for giving up their time to chat to me about women's football in Spain. I hope you enjoyed the episode. You can listen to the rest of the miniseries with episodes on England and France on Spotify at Football51. Please do get in touch with us on Twitter and Instagram at Football51Pod. We really want to hear your feedback and let us know if there's any other topics you want us to explore. We'll be back with more episodes during the seasons. A la prochaine, a la próxima. See you next time.